We are all waiting for personalized medicine. What are the most important tools that will bring personalized medicine to clinical practice? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss why DNA biobanks are critical to the success of personalized medicine is Dr. Dan Roden, Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology, Director of the Oates Institute for Experimental Therapeutics, and Assistant Vice Chancellor for Personalized Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Roden, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you. So what's a DNA biobank? Well, the idea is that we all vary in many, many physiologic and pathophysiologic features. I mean, when you're next in a large group of people, just look around and ask yourself, well, what is it that makes us all look different and have different heights and have different disease susceptibilities? And part of that, a large part of that, is in our genes. So as we think about ways in which to discover those genes, there are really two approaches. One is to do gene discovery in a large clinical trial. That means you take patients who have characteristic X and patients who have characteristic Y, and you compare their genes and find the genetic variants that predispose to being tall, being short, uh, having addictive behaviors, getting atrial fibrillation, what have you. That's one approach. Another approach is to say, well, clinical trials are biased because of the way in which we recruit patients into clinical trials, of the way in which we exclude patients from clinical trials. And so we've taken the attitude at Vanderbilt that an alternate approach is to collect DNA from a very, very large, unselected group of patients who come to our medical center. We're fortunate at our medical center because we rely almost exclusively on a pretty long-standing and robust electronic medical record. So the medical information that we have on patients who come to Vanderbilt is all searchable, and there's a very, very large volume of that. And so our notion is to couple the electronic medical record to the DNA sample and then be able to ask questions about disease susceptibility, about variability in response to drugs in a much more broad way than than a clinical trial would allow. And what do you do about some of the HIPAA issues with accessing the electronic medical record? Is it somehow made anonymous? Well, so let me back up a little bit and just say that we're not the only people who have this idea in the world. There are a number of efforts at collecting DNA samples, and and I might add other kinds of biological samples, serum samples and tissue samples, from very, very large groups of patients, and then coupling that in some way to medical information, be it information obtained through a questionnaire or information obtained through an electronic medical record. At Vanderbilt, what we have done is we've used federal rules around the use of discarded biological samples to build our system. Let me just say that if you, as a physician uh, or as a physician researcher, ask your pathologist for a piece of liver because you want to do a particular assay on that piece of liver, there are rules that govern your access to that piece of liver and your access to the clinical information that might accompany that piece of liver. And the rules basically say that if the sample is being discarded and the clinical information is de-identified, then that is not human subjects' research anymore. And so we have taken that 
model, and we've said, well, we collect blood samples from somewhere between 500 and 1,000 individuals at Vanderbilt every day. They go to the clinical pathology labs where the assays that are requested are done, and then those samples sit there for usually around three days. And after three days, if the pathology department doesn't need them anymore, they're going to be discarded. So we said, well, let's take those discarded blood samples, extract DNA from them, and then we can use that DNA to do the kinds of research that I mentioned before. But the caveat is that the clinical information that comes with the DNA has to be stripped of identifiers. And it's easy to say that, but to take an entire electronic medical record, ours includes about 1.7 million different patients, and remove all identifiers is a huge challenge. I think it's important that your listeners understand the difference between the word anonymization and the term de-identification. Anonymization means, means that there is no way, computationally or otherwise, to ever figure out whose sample that is. De-identification removes major identifiers that you and I and everybody can think of, their names, addresses, social security numbers, patient photographs, what have you, from a medical record, but then ask the question, how hard would it be to re-identify that individual? And, and de-identification always carries with it the idea that it is possible, if you wished, with enough computational power and enough reference to other databases to actually figure out whose sample is whose. So we recognize that in our databank design. And to protect further against that, we've done a couple of things. One is we have a major effort in our informatics department to actually quantitate that risk, to actually understand exactly how hard it would be, because this is all very, very new science. The second thing is that anytime anybody wants to use the data from our de-identified clinical record, there are data use agreements that investigators have to sign that say that they will specifically not try to do re-identification. It's rather like using the electronic medical record in general. One of the dangers in, using, in deploying an electronic medical record in a medical center like ours, and this is well recognized, is that people get curious and they say, well, gee, I wonder what would happen if I wonder what that person has in their medical record. And places that have had electronic medical records for a long time recognize that people are naturally curious. And so people start to look in other people's medical records. And, and we have very, very strict rules about that. The virtue of the electronics is, of course, you can track every single access to every single record. And people have actually lost their jobs at Vanderbilt and other places because of that kind of curiosity. And the re-identification potential of a de-identified medical record falls into the same category, I think, that you just make people sign data use agreements, and it's another level of protection. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and with us is Dr. Dan Roden, professor of medicine and pharmacology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. So you said you collect between 500 and 1,000 samples a day. A week. A week. How long have you been collecting those, and how many samples do you have right now? We began collecting samples in the spring of 2007. There have been bumps along the way. Uh, I would be the first to, to admit that, but we're closing in on 50,000 samples right now. And that's a pretty large collection, and it starts to give us an opportunity to do the kinds of association studies between specific diseases 
or specific drug responses and the genetics underlying those. So as an example, I can give you an estimate that out of those 50,000 patients, there are probably five or 6,000 patients with type 2 diabetes. And of those, about 3,500 are Caucasian and about something over 1,000 are African-American. So that's a very, very large collection of patients with a common disease and lots and lots of other information in their medical record, what kind of medicines they were getting, what kinds of outcomes they had. And that very, very large collection was accrued over a relatively short period of time. And that's one of the beauties of a banking approach to this kind of thing. If you want to have very large collections of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and atrial fibrillation and type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes and premature coronary disease and breast cancer, you can either decide to do all of those each one of them sequentially or even in parallel, or you could say, well, let's just accrue patients who walk in the door and we'll have large numbers of each one of those diseases within a year or two. And we've already shown in preliminary studies that the data we get out of the electronic medical record married to the DNA sample is does a wonderful job of reproducing the kinds of risk factors that people have identified in clinical trials in populations that accrued over much longer periods of time. What are you doing with the information now? Are there epidemiological studies that you're doing? What kind of data crunching are you doing and what kind of data are we getting out of it? So we're at the point now where we are poised to start to use the information. I think that it's been a very long process. Let me just say that we started planning for this project in 2004. It took three years of planning before we accrued our very first DNA sample, and our preliminary studies could only start once we had several thousand samples in hand, because we really have to have the large numbers in order to get specific diseases nailed down. So we've done a study that asked the question, if you collect these very large numbers of samples associated with an electronic medical record, can you actually go back into the record, find patients who have type 2 diabetes and find patients who do not have type 2 diabetes? And can you demonstrate that risk markers, genetic risk factors that others have described are also present in your population? It's a very important test for our kind of approach because if we don't find the things that other people find, then the whole experiment is flawed in some way. And our preliminary data show that it really looks like we can reproduce most things that, that have been described using our approach. One of the things that's really important about that is that it's not a matter of just surfing through a bunch of medical records or de-identified medical records. You have to use relatively complicated approaches using our bioinformatics staff to find cases and controls for diseases like type 2 diabetes or atrial fibrillation. It's not just a matter of searching on an ICD-9 code or on a particular set of medicines. It's usually a matter of searching for lots and lots of different things and, and being comfortable with the definitions that we come up with. So it's been a challenge to develop those kinds of tools, and we're much better at it now than we were a year Ago. And is the quality of the data also dependent on what's going on on the other side where people are entering things into the electronic medical record? Well, there's no question that there's a garbage in, garbage out problem. I can tell you a little anecdote. We did a study on rheumatoid arthritis, and it turns out that in the early days of Embril, the biologic that is used for rheumatoid arthritis, the rheumatology community was relatively convinced that it would work for psoriatic arthritis, but the payers wouldn't pay for it unless the diagnosis was rheumatoid arthritis. So I, we discovered this by talking to rheumatologists talking to people who sort of fight the fight every day in the rheumatology clinic, and we began to understand that there are some people within our medical record who at some point in their career as patients carried a diagnosis of rheumatoid
rheumatoid arthritis, but in fact, who don't have that diagnosis. So that's a, sort of an extreme example of garbage in, garbage out. They were deliberately miscoded so they could have access to a medicine. And how do you deal with that issue then as you're trying to keep your data clean so you can make conclusions? That becomes relatively straightforward because our medical record is longitudinal. You can look over time and you can understand that, oh, here's a person who had this diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis at one point, but in fact, turns out they have psoriasis and they have psoriatic arthritis. And our algorithms that the informatics staff deploys detect that kind of thing and put that person in a category that is non-rheumatoid arthritis. One of the interesting questions we can then ask, of course, is do the genetics of drug response in rheumatoid arthritis track with the genetics of drug response in psoriatic arthritis? We haven't gotten to that experiment yet, but the availability of the capability of identifying those particular subtypes of patients give us that opportunity, which is something that a clinical trial would have greater difficulty addressing, I think. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Dan Roden. We've been discussing the DNA Biobank at Vanderbilt University and its ability to enable personalized medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD is online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.